Hello, my darling, and welcome to today's story time. Today we are reading Medusa's Coil by H.P. Lovecraft. If you like what you hear, please make sure to like, comment, and subscribe. And now, on with our story time. Marceline thought we couldn't see through, that the false front would hold till we had bartered away our immortal souls, and she was half right. She'd have caught me in the end. She was only waiting. But Frank, good old Frank, was too much for me. He knew what it all meant, and painted it. I don't wonder she shrieked and ran off when she saw it. It wasn't quite done, but God knows, enough was there. That I knew I'd had to kill her. Kill her, and everything connected with her. It was a taint that wholesome human blood couldn't bear. There was something else, too. But you'll never know that if you burn the picture without looking. I staggered down to her room with this machete that I got off the wall here, leaving Frank still knocked out. He was breathing, though, and I knew and thanked heaven that I hadn't killed him. I found her in front of the mirror, braiding that accursed hair. She turned on me like a wild beast and began spitting out her hatred of Marsh. The fact that she'd been in love with him, and I knew she had, only made it worse. For a minute, I couldn't move, and she came within an ace of completely hypnotizing me. Then I thought of the picture, and the spell broke. She saw the breaking in my eyes, and must have noticed the machete, too. I never saw anything give such a wild, jungle beast look as she did then. She sprang for me with claws out like a leopard's, but I was too quick. I swung the machete, and it was all over. Dennis had to stop telling the story here, and I saw the perspiration running down his forehead through the splattered blood. But in a moment, he hoarsely resumed. I said it was all over, but God, some of it had only just begun. I felt I had fought through the legions of Satan and put my foot on the back of the thing I had annihilated. Then I saw that blasphemous braid of coarse black hair begin to twist and squirm of itself. I might have known it. It was all in the old tales. That damnable hair had a life of its own. And it couldn't be ended by killing the creature itself. I knew I'd have to burn it. So I started to hack it off with the machete. But it was devilish work. Tough, like iron wires. But I managed to do it. And it was loathsome the way the big braid writhed and struggled in my grasp. About that time I had the last strand cut or pulled off. I heard the eldritch wailing from behind the house. You know, 
It's still going off and on. I don't know what it is, but it must be something springing from this hellish business. It half seems like something I ought to know, but can't quite place. It got my nerves the first time I heard it, and I dropped the severed braid in my fright. Then, I got a worse fright, for in another second, the braid had turned on me and began to strike venomously with one of its ends, which had knotted itself up like a sort of grotesque head. I struck out with the machete, and it turned away. Then, when I had my breath again, I saw that the monstrous thing was crawling along the floor by itself, like a great black snake. I couldn't do anything for a while, but when it vanished through the door, I managed to pull myself together and stumble after it. I could follow the broad, bloody trail, and I saw it led upstairs. It brought me here, and may heaven curse me if I didn't see it through the doorway, striking at poor dazed Marsh like a maddened rattler as it had struck at me, finally coiling around him as a python would. He had begun to come too, but that abominable serpent thing got him before he was on his feet. I knew that all of that woman's hatred was behind it, but I hadn't the power to pull it off. I tried, but it was too much for me. Even the machete was no good. I couldn't swing it freely, or would have slashed Frank to pieces. So I saw those monstrous coils tighten, saw poor Frank crushed to death before my eyes. And all the time that awful pain howling came from somewhere beyond the fields. That's all. I pulled the velvet cloth over the pitcher, and I hope it'll never be lifted. The thing must be burnt. I couldn't pry the coils off poor dead Frank. They cling to him like a leech, and seem to have lost their motion altogether. It's as if that snaky rope of hair has a kind of perverse fondness for the man it killed. It's clinging to him, embracing him. You'll have to burn poor Frank with it, but for God's sake, don't forget to see it in ashes. That and the pitcher. They must both go. The safety of the world demands that they go. Dennis might have whispered more, but a fresh burst of distant wailing got us short. For the first time, we knew what it was, for a westerly veering wind brought articulate words at last. We ought to have known long before, since sounds much like it had often come from the same source. It was wrinkled Sophonispa, the ancient Zulu witchwoman who'd fawned on Marceline, keening from her cabin in a way which crowned the horrors of this nightmare tragedy. We could both hear some of the things she howled, and knew that secret and primordial bonds linked this savage sorceress with that other inheritor of elder secrets who had just been extirpated. 
Some of the words she used betrayed her closeness to demonic and Paleogean traditions. She wailed strange words for hours. And her wailing was never ending. But I could only pay attention to a small portion. The expression on my boy's face showed that it had reminded him of something frightful, and the tightening of his hand on the machete boded no good. I knew he was desperate, and sprang to disarm him if possible before he could do anything more. But I was too late. An old man with a bad spine doesn't count for much physically. There was a terrible struggle, but he had done for himself before many seconds were over. I'm not sure yet, but that he tried to kill me too. His last panting words were something about the need of wiping out everything that had been connected with Marceline, either by blood or marriage. I wonder to this day that I didn't go stark mad in that instant, or in the moments and hours afterward. In front of me was the slain body of my boy, the only human being I had to cherish, and ten feet away, in front of that shrouded easel, was the body of his best friend, with a nameless coil of horror wound around it. Below was the scalped corpse of that she-monster, about whom I was half ready to believe anything. I was too dazed to analyze the probability of the hair story, and even if I had not been, that dismal howling from Aunt Sophie's cabin would have been enough to quiet doubt for the nonce. If I'd been wise, I'd have done just what poor Dennis told me to, burn the pitcher and the body-grasping hair at once and without curiosity. But I was too shaken to be wise, I suppose I muttered foolish things over my boy, and then I remembered that the night was wearing on and that the servants would be back in the morning. It was plain that a matter like this could never be explained, and I knew that I must cover things up and invent a story. That coil of air around Marsh was a monstrous thing. As I poked at it with a sword, which I took from the wall, I almost thought I felt it tighten its grip on the dead man. I didn't dare touch it, and the longer I looked at it, the more horrible things I noticed about it. One thing gave me a start. I won't mention it, but it partially explained the need for feeding the hair with strange oils, as Marceline had always done. In the end... I decided to bury all three bodies in the cellar with quicklime, which I knew we had in the storehouse. It was a night of hellish work. I dug three graves, my boys a long way from the other two, for I didn't want him to be near either the woman's body or her hair. I was sorry I couldn't get the coil from around poor Marsh. It was terrible work getting them all down to the cellar. I used blankets in carting the woman and the poor devil with the coil around him. Then I had to get two barrels of lime from the storehouse. God must have given me strength. 
for I not only moved them both, but filled all three graves without a hitch. Some of the lime I made into whitewash. I had to take a step ladder and fix over the parlor ceiling for the blood had oozed through, and I burned nearly everything in Marceline's room, scrubbing the walls and floor and heavy furniture. I washed up the attic studio, too, and the trail and footprints that led there. And all the time I could hear old Sophie's wailing in the distance. The devil must have been in that creature to let her voice go on like that. But she always was howling strange things. I locked the studio door and took the key to my room. Then I burned all of my stained clothes in the fireplace. By dawn, the whole house looked quite normal so far as the casual eye could tell. I hadn't dared touch the covered easel, but meant to attend to that later. Well, the servants came back next day, and I told them all the young folks had gone to St. Louis. None of the field hands seemed to have seen or heard anything, and old Sophie's wailing had stopped at the instant of sunrise. She was like a sphinx after that, and never let out a word of what had been on her brooding witch brain the day and night before. Later on, I pretended that Dennis and Marsh and Marceline had gone back to Paris, and had a certain discreet agency mail me letters from there, letters that I fixed up in forged handwriting. It took a good deal of deceit and reticence to explain things to my various friends, and I know people have secretly suspected me of holding something back. I had the deaths of Marsh and Dennis reported during the war, and later said Marshaline had entered a convent. Fortunately, Marsh was an orphan whose eccentric ways had alienated him from his people in Louisiana. Things might have been patched up a good deal better for me if I had had the sense to burn that picture sell the plantation, and give up trying to manage things with a shaken and overstrained mind. You see what my folly has brought me to. Failing crops, hands discharged one by one, place falling to ruin, and myself a hermit and a target for dozens of strange countryside stories. Nobody will come around here after dark nowadays or any other time, if it can be helped. That's why I knew you must be a stranger. And why do I stay here? I can't wholly tell you that. It's bound up too closely with things at the very rim of sane reality. It wouldn't have been so, perhaps, if I hadn't looked at the picture. I ought to have done, as poor Dennis told me. I honestly meant to burn it when I went up to that locked studio a week after the horror. But I looked first, and that changed everything. No, there's no use telling you what I saw. You can, in a way, see for yourself presently, though time and dampness have done their work. I don't think it can hurt you if you want to take a look. 
but it was different with me. I knew too much of what it all meant. Dennis had been right. There was the greatest triumph of human art since Rembrandt, even though still unfinished. I grasped that at the start, and knew that poor Marsh had justified his decadent philosophy. He was too painting when Baudier was to poetry, and Marshalline was the key that unlocked his innermost thought of genius. The thing almost stunned me when I pulled aside the hangings, stunned me before I half knew what the whole thing was. You know, it's only partly a portrait. Marsh had been pretty literal when he hinted that he wasn't painting Marshalline alone, but what he saw through her and beyond her, of course she was in it, was the key to it in a sense, but her figure only formed one point in a vast composition. She was nude, except for that hideous web of hair spun around her, and was half seated, half reclining on a sort of a bench, carved in patterns unlike those of any known decorative tradition. There was a monstrously shaped goblet in one hand, from which was spilling fluid whose color I haven't been able to place or classify to this day. I don't know where Marsh even got the pigments. Her figure was in the left-hand foreground of the strangest sort of scene I ever saw in my life. I think there was a faint suggestion of its all being a kind of emanation from the woman's brain. Yet there was also a directly opposite suggestion, as if she were just an evil image or hallucination conjured up by the scene itself. I can't tell you now whether it's an exterior or an interior, whether those hellish cyclopean vaultings are seen from the outside or the inside, or whether they are indeed carven stone and not merely a morbid, fungus, aborescence. The geometry of the whole thing is crazy. One gets the acute and obtuse angles all mixed up. And goodness, the shapes of nightmare that float around in that perpetual demon twilight. The blasphemies that lurk and leer and hold the witch's sabbath with that woman as a high priestess. The black, shaggy entities that are not quite goats crocodile-headed beast with three legs and a dorsal row of tentacles, and the flat-nosed Egyptians dancing in a pattern that Egypt's priest knew and called a cursed. But that scene wasn't Egypt. It was behind Egypt, behind even Atlantis, behind fabled Mew, and myth whispered Lemuria. It was the ultimate fountainhead of all horror on this earth, and the symbolism showed only too clearly how integral a part of it Marceline was. I think it might be the unmentional Rylea that was not built by any creatures of this planet. The thing that Marsh and Dennis used to talk about in the shadows with hushed voices. In the picture it appears that the whole scene is deep underwater, though everybody seems to be breathing freely. Well, I couldn't do anything but look and shudder, and finally I saw that Marceline was watching me, 
craftily out of those monstrous, dilated eyes on the canvas. It was no mere superstition. Marsh had actually caught some of her horrible vitality in his symphonies of line and color, so that she still brooded and stared and hated, just as if most of her weren't down in the cellar under quicklime. And it was worst of all, when some of those agate-born, snaky strands of hair began to lift themselves up from the surface and grope out into the room towards me. Then it was that I knew the last, final horror, and realized I was a guardian and prisoner forever. She was the thing from which the first dim legends of Medusa and the Gorgons had sprung and something in my shaken will had been captured and turned to stone at last. Never again would I be safe in those coiling, snaky strands, the strands in the pitcher, and those that lay brooding under the lime near the wine casks. All too late I recalled the tales of the virtual indestructibility, even through centuries of burial, of the hair of the dead. My life since has been nothing but horror and slavery. Always there had lurked the fear of what broods down in the cellar. In less than a month, the slaves began whispering about the great black snake that crawled around near the wine casks after dark, and about the curious way its trail would lead to another spot, six feet away. Finally I had to move everything to another part of the cellar, for not a slave could be induced to go near the place where the snake was seen. Then the field hands began talking about the black snake that visited old Sophie's cabin every night after midnight. One of them showed me its trail, and not long afterward, I found out that Aunt Sophie herself had begun to pay strange visits to the cellar of the big house, lingering and muttering for hours, in the very spot where none of the slaves would go near. God, but I was glad when that old witch died. I honestly believe she had been a priestess of some ancient and terrible tradition back in Africa. She must have lived to be almost 150 years old. Sometimes I think I hear something gliding around the house at night. There'll be a strange noise on the stairs where the boards are loose, and the latch of my room will rattle as if with an inward pressure. I always keep my door locked, of course. Then there are certain mornings when I seem to catch a sickish, musty odor in the corridors and notice a faint, ropey trail through the dust of the floors. I know I must guard the hair in the pitcher, for if anything were to happen to it, there are entities in this house which would take a sure and terrible revenge. I don't even dare to die, for life and death are all one to those in the clutch of what came out of Rylea. Something would be on hand to punish my neglect. Medusa's coil has got me, and it will always be the same. Never mix up with secret and ultimate horror, young man, if you value your immortal soul. As the old man finished his story, I saw that the small lamp had long since burned dry, 
and that the large one was nearly empty. It must, I knew, be near dawn, and my ears told me that the storm was over. The tale had left me in a half daze, and I almost feared to glance at the door, lest it reveal an inward pressure from some unnameable source. It would be hard to say which had the greatest hold on me. Stark horror, confusion, or a kind of morbid, fantastic curiosity. I was only beyond speech, and had to wait for my strange host to break the spell. Well, do you want to see the thing? His voice was very low and hesitant, and I saw he was tremendously in earnest. One of my various emotions, curiosity gained the upper hand, and I nodded silently. He rose, lighting a candle on a nearby table and holding it high before him as he opened the door. Come with me, upstairs. I dreaded to brave those musty corridors again, but fascination drowned all of my qualms. The boards creaked beneath our feet, and I trembled once when I thought I saw a faint, rope-like line traced in the dust near the staircase. The steps of the attic were noisy and rickety, with several of the treads missing. I was just glad of the need of looking sharply to my footing, for it gave me an excuse not to glance about. The attic corridor was pitch black and heavily cobwebbed, and inch deep, with dust, except where a beaten trail led to a door on the left at the farther end. As I noticed the rotting remains of a thick carpet, I thought of the other feet, which had pressed it in bygone decades, of these, and of one thing which did not have feet. The old man took me straight to the door at the end of the beaten path, and fumbled a second with the rusty latch. I was acutely frightened now, but I knew the picture was so close, yet dared not retreat at this stage. In another moment, my host was ushering me into the deserted studio. And this, my darling, ends our story time for today. As always, I hope you have very sweet and creepy dreams. Good night.